Matthew chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 25 through 34. The word of our Lord from the gospel says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his statue? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of those. Now if God, who clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. If your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Lord, we pray that You bless the reading of Your Word to our hearts and to our minds. We pray that You would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Amen. You've probably been out to eat with someone and you've heard that uh, gracious offer come across the table. Seriously, get whatever you'd like. It's on me. Now we live in a, in a uh, culture that insists that there's no such thing as a free meal. And you know, indeed, there really isn't anything such as a free meal because a meal, regardless of whether you're paying or not, it does come at the cost of some wages. Someone's paying for it. Even if it's in someone's home, they've bought the ingredients or perhaps they've uh, harvested the, the ingredients from their garden, but they put some money into that garden. There's no such thing as a free meal because it comes at the cost of wages, but it also comes at the cost of labor. Someone cooked that meal. Someone prepared it. Someone set the table. Someone uh, provided that chair upon which you sit. And so we can rightly insist that there is no such thing as a free meal. But all throughout the Scriptures, we're called to come and to dine freely. The prophet Isaiah, in chapter 55 of his prophecy, he is writing to those who are in captivity. Israel's already been taken off into captivity, or Judah has been taken into captivity. And he sends them words of promise and hope in the last chapters of Isaiah. And he says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Wait a minute. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear to me and come to me. Here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. 
the sure mercies of David. In John's account of the gospel, you have Jesus uh, focused quite heavily upon food and drink. So many of his miracles were involving food and drink. His first miracle, changing the water into wine in Cana of Galilee at the wedding, celebrating with those families and those gathered friends. You have Jesus feeding the 5,000. In other gospel narratives, you have Jesus feeding 5,000 at once and then 4,000 as well. Um, so many of, of, uh, of the stories that John captures for us in his gospel deal with food and drink. But in chapter 7, we read that on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then we're familiar with the passage from Revelation. At the very end of the story, in chapter 3, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock, and if anyone would open, I will come in and dine with him, and he with me. All throughout the Scriptures, you have these lavish invitations, essentially, get what you would like. It's on me. Come. Got no money? Fine. Come and buy what you need. Come and find bread, find wine, find water, find living water welling up within your soul. Just open the door. Just come. And we'll dine. A meal is a celebratory thing. In a meal, we enjoy fellowship. One of the Worst experiences in life is sitting in a nice restaurant by yourself eating a meal with no one to talk to. And it's probably made worse by having one of these little devices. You know, because you can sit and play on your phone and you may feel like you're connected to other people, maybe shoot a text or something, but you're just kind of eating to eat at that point. And maybe you're on Facebook and you see that you've got friends that are hanging out together and that sort of thing. Meals are, are intended to be about fellowship. We gather at the table, not just to have an eating surface, but to have some place to gather, some place where others are welcome. A meal is about sharing. You read in, the, in the, uh, the, the book of Acts that the, the believers were meeting from house to house. They were breaking bread. They were eating their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Meals are about fellowship. They're about sharing. They're intended to be a celebratory thing. That's why in the Old Testament you have Israel's festivals or feasts. They were to eat food in rejoicing. Celebrating how God had provided for them. Celebrating how God had met their needs. Not just for the food that's on the table, but how He had met their needs in redeeming them. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Reminding them they didn't have time at the Exodus to let the bread leaven or rise. And so they had to make unleavened cakes. The Passover was the the highest and holiest of their meals. It was a celebratory time. It was a time to fellowship with one another, to share with one another. It was a time to talk together because meals are intended to be a time of conversation. 
A time where we talk. A time where we cut up. A time where we laugh together. And remember together. It's one of the things we do at family reunions. Is we tell stories about years and years ago. It, only a family reunion can turn a, a, a single meal of fried chicken and mashed potatoes and that sort of stuff. And I'm making you all hungry. I'm sorry. But only a family reunion can turn that, that sort of just simple potluck meal into a, a seven or eight hour occasion where food is being eaten the entire time. You just sit around grazing, laughing and talking, conversing together, remembering together, telling stories together. That's what meals are supposed to look like. There, there's supposed to be a time of relaxation and liberty. A time to put your feet up a bit. We read all throughout the gospel narratives of Jesus being at table. Relaxing. Resting. Stepping away from the worries of the day. Sitting down to a nice meal. Sitting among friends and family. Sitting in the sounds of laughter and talking, sitting to relax, to rest, to unloosen the belt for a bit, expand the waist for a moment. I say they're intended to be a time of liberty because they're a time where we're supposed to sit and be free, be, be relaxed from the anxieties of the day. If it's a dinner meal, or in, in rural Mississippi, they would call lunch dinner, and then dinner was supper. And so our kids are all confused. They'll say, Is it, what do we have for dinner? We didn't have dinner, we had lunch. No, we had dinner, we're having supper later. They, they all have their own lingo. I think Emory insists on it being dinner and then supper. I don't know why. He wasn't even living in Mississippi, but he's, he's, he's heard the stories, you know. He's heard the stories at the meals. He's, and so he likes to contribute to the confusion and chaos. But um, if it's, if it's a, an evening meal, a, a meal at the end of the day, it's, a, it's typically a time to relax and unwind. And kids, what happened at school today? How was work today? Oh, you know, what, what are the plans for tomorrow? It's typically a time where we rest because the day is spent and our bodies are spent. You know, Food and meals, eating is also a, a, a thing of liberty because at a meal we are expected to consume. Now we are not mere consumers. We are more than just consumers. But the purpose of a meal is to be fed. It is to eat. It is to consume, to take in. The, the definition of gluttony, or the meaning of the term gluttony, I don't know if this is a, a, a Webster's appropriate definition, but this is the sense of, of the, the, the idea of gluttony. It is to always be feasting and never fasting. Everything is a celebration. Everything is a moment to consume. Everything is a moment to feed. And so... We do ourselves well to 
to abstain from time to time. To say no. But the purpose of the meal is to come and to say, yes, please. May I have more? We come, we relax, we celebrate, we fellowship, we share, we pass the plates. We laugh. We do this at family reunions. We do this at birthday parties. We do this at 4th of July cookouts or crab boils graciously hosted. You know, it's interesting that within the animal kingdom, one of the distinctives of being a a human, one of the distinctives of being a person, is that we don't just eat to live. In some sense, we live to eat. Not in a gluttonous way, but in a way that we were created to consume. We were created to enjoy. Adam and Eve were told to, to eat To take from the trees freely. Except that one tree. Before the fall. It's a good thing. It's part of God's design. It's not a shameful thing. The scriptures lead us to believe that even in the afterlife. or It's probably a bad term. But even in the life that is to come. That they'll be eating. It's not a bad thing. In the created order of God, it is a beautiful thing. It's a thing of enjoyment because it's a thing of celebration. To celebrate God's bountiful goodness. To celebrate the freedoms that He's provided for us. There may not be such a thing as a free meal, but there is certainly an opportunity to feast in freedom. To feast knowing that we can relax for a moment. And we can enjoy something for a moment. The scriptures begin with the story of Adam and Eve. Adam Adam and Eve being told that they are to eat. It ends with the great wedding feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Where all of the redeemed will gather at the Lord's table. And will celebrate a great meal together. As the church, the bride of Christ will, will be wedded to her husband. The bridegroom. And we will celebrate with feasting. But in the middle, in the middle we have Jesus telling his disciples. Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. There's significance in food in the Scriptures. God has provided for us. He has provided not just the elements of the food, but He has provided the opportunity to be free for a moment. I often, I don't don't know why I, well, I, I probably associate food with the Lord of the Rings because I associate food and eating with dwarves and hobbits because they love eating. Um, But I often, when I think of this idea of food being a thing of celebration, I think of the Lord of the Rings. I think of what it was like in Middle Earth. And and, uh, and especially when I think of relaxing to eat, I think of those journeys of the hobbits and the elves and the dwarves and the men. uh, and, and, And how they would take time away. They had a journey to be about. They were supposed to be getting to 
the mountain to, to cast the ring into the fire from whence it came. There was a mission. There was something to be done, but, but yet there was still time to stop and to relax, to eat, to put your feet up, to find a little bit of rest, to talk. It was often in those meals that they got to know one another better. One of the conversations that took place was between uh, Frodo and, and um, Gandalf the elf. And Frodo was complaining about the troubles of the times and why in the world did this have to happen? Why did this ring have to come to me? Why in the world... Why in the world... He was worrying. He was anxious. He was fretting over what lay ahead and why me. And Gandalf said something to the effect of, you can't choose what comes to you in life. You can't choose what times you live in. You can't choose any of that. What you must choose is how you're going to live in those times and what you're going to do with those things that do come your way. Jesus says, why in the world are we going to be worrying about what tomorrow holds? Why in the world are we going to be worrying about something as silly as what we're going to wear and what we're going to eat? Now those aren't just silly things. Right? We all wear clothes. We all eat food. But Jesus says, oh, good grief, look at, the, look at the fields. Look at the lilies out there. The grass is clothed in the beauty of lilies. And that grass is one day going to be cut down and it's going to be disposed of. It's going to be put in the oven not to bake a nice cake for you to eat, but it's going to be thrown in the oven to be burned up and consumed. It's, it's pointless. It's worthless. And God cares so much about that grass that is dying that He's going to clothe it with beautiful lilies. He says, look at the birds of the air. They're not sitting around fretting and wringing their hands over what in the world are we going to do about dinner tomorrow night. God feeds them. He cares for them. And Jesus' point is, worrying about life is not going to do a thing in the world about life. Worrying about our culture will not do a single thing Thing in the world to change our culture. Only changing our culture will change our culture. And so we can sit around and worry and be filled with anxiety, and we can think, what in the world? What? I mean, good grief, I've got six kids. What kind of world am I going to raise my kids in? But worrying about that and asking that question does nothing. In the words of Jim Moore, it does diddly poop. Absolutely nothing to help. Jesus says, why, why worry? Trust God. Now, notice that trust is not just sitting back, relaxed, nothing to do, nothing to... Got nothing to worry about. Jesus is not talking about just some chilled out existence where life just kind of passes us along and we're, you know, living free spirits and being driven by the ways of the world. 
Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Now we think of kingdom in a in a very kind of medieval understanding of kingdom. We don't think of kingdom in a in an ancient Near Eastern way. Jesus, remember, was living in the ancient Near East. He was a Jewish man. He was a rabbi. And kingdom meant something in the Gospels. The kingdom of God was about God's rule and reign. God's ordering of life for His people. It does go back to the idea of a patriarch. The head of the family. And the king was the head of all the families. And it was his job to provide for, to protect, and to rule and reign over his people. To provide a stability in life. And Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God. Notice that Jesus also tells us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Those aren't separate things. Like, first Lord, I want Your kingdom to come. And then, if we get around to it, I want Your will to be done. Those are synonymous almost. Your kingdom come and Your will be done. When God's kingdom is here, God's way of living is here. God's ordering of life is here. For He is ruling. Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Righteousness is not just clean piety where we sit back and are dignified in our righteousness. Righteousness is about right relationships. It's about entering into right relationships with people. It's about living life rightly as it ought to be lived in community with others. So seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you. In a sense, Jesus is saying all that stuff's going to work itself out. God is going to care for you. God is going to meet your needs. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know that He's watching me. Not to say, aha, when I mess up, but He's watching me because He cares for me. He can be trusted. He can be counted upon, depended upon. In the early church, the worship of the Lord's Day was characterized by a celebratory feast. They called them love feasts. Um, one of the reasons they were persecuted was because of these love feasts, which would last for multiple hours. And they weren't characterized by just the Lord's Supper, but they were actually a time of feasting. It was, it was like potluck Sunday every Sunday. I mean, can you imagine that? Back in rural Mississippi, we'd say, all right, we're going to have a fellowship next Sunday evening. Everybody knew that means bring food because a fellowship is food. Food is fellowship. It's one of the rules in our house. If you're done eating, that's fine. You can still sit there. Unless it's Saturday night, then you can go get in the bathtub because we've got to get, get cleaned up. But food is fellowship. Could you imagine in the early church, all right, next week we're going to have another fellowship. We had fellowship today and last week. That was part of their gathering was to get together and to celebrate because it was the Lord's Day. It was the day that Christ 
rose from the dead. It was the day that their victory had come. The day of their redemption. It was a thing to celebrate. It was not a thing to dread. It was not a thing to balance. We're going we're to go to church tomorrow. Or Man, we really got a lot of stuff to do around the house. It was, it was a time that they looked forward to. And not just because Sunday. I mean, they were, they were getting together in one another's home on a regular basis. In fact, Acts tells us they were meeting in the temple daily to pray. Their lives were in constant community with one another. But one of the things that characterized the early church was the fact that they celebrated the Eucharist weekly. Now we hear that term Eucharist and we think, oh, that's like a a high-flown, high-church technical term. It's a Greek word that simply means thanksgiving. In the liturgy uh, that we'll be going through here in a few moments, we will, or I will be praying that it is always right, good, and a joyful thing to give thanks to the Father. The Eucharist is a meal of giving thanks. Thanks for what God has done in redeeming us. It is a thing to be celebrated. It is a thing to to be glad over. The early church's worship life was, was characterized by... Not just excitement, but joy. Joy and peace and gladness. Sundays were not just a long, drawn-out, somber time in the early church. They were a time to celebrate, to rejoice. You can't rejoice. At least you'll find it hard rejoicing when you're filled with the anxieties of life when you're filled with worries and frets, when you're filled with what might happen and what might go wrong. And Jesus knows that. Jesus tells us, let tomorrow worry about itself. you got plenty of worries for today. you got plenty of things to be thinking about right now. About right now. Seek the kingdom. Seek His righteousness. The early church was, as they gathered to celebrate, as they gathered to share in the Eucharist together, they gathered in remembrance of the Lord's day, of what Christ had done in redeeming them, to proclaim to one another that He actually rose from the dead. That He defeated the grave. That He rose bodily, physically, literally. That His body came out of the tomb with new life and was glorified. They they gathered to remember and because they were remembering, they gathered to celebrate His presence with them then. See, Easter's not just about God's mystical presence to His church. Easter is about the defeating of death. It is about resurrection. 
And because it's about resurrection and we can remember what happened, we can celebrate that He is with us. He is with us through His Spirit. He is with us and is preparing a place for us. He cares so much for us that He's preparing a place for us, but even while He's preparing a place for us, He's yet here with us now. And so as we gather at the table, we gather to remember. We gather to celebrate. We gather in His presence. We don't just gather because it's something we thought it would be a good idea to do. We gather because He told us to, and we gather because we, we ought to count upon the fact that He is a good and gracious host. He invites us to His table, and He intends to join us. We gather remembering the price of our freedom, remembering what God has done to redeem us, and so we come freely. We come without the burdens of the world. We come not to escape the world, but to proclaim our redemption in it. Just as the family altar needs to be restored, so does the family table. Now here's, for those of you who like to be practical, here's my most practical thing I want to tell you this morning. We need, as a congregation, to feast together. And you need, as families, to feast together. You need to share meals together. Because remember, a, I'll go back to that one, Bill, because if, you, if you're missing it. It's a time of fellowship and sharing. It's a time of conversation, catching up. It's a time of laughing, relaxing. It's a time to rest, to find liberty. That's something that ought to be enjoyed in the context of a family on a regular basis. Now, some of us have schedules where we're out of, out of town or out of the country or uh, working odd hours, working a third shift, and this one's working a, a, a second shift. And so sometimes it's hard. But we need to prioritize. We need to prioritize the time we share as families at the table. It's easy with kids. I mean, let me tell you. It's easy to say, all right, here's your food. There's the TV. We've got to have a little bit of quiet. But every family needs to share time on their knees together praying. David's been busting on all of us about that lately. Thank you, David. But we need to also be spending time together at the table. Even if it's food that's ordered in. I'm not saying everybody's got to spend three hours in the kitchen stewing something and, you know... Dad comes in with the rolled up newspaper and sets his briefcase down and sits at the table and mom's flying in, you know, oh honey, how was your day? I'm not, I'm not calling for a, a, a leave it to beaver moment. 
I'm calling for families just sitting and relaxing and talking together over food. It will enrich your family. And as a result, this is a bit kind of an ulterior motive. Is it ulterior if I divulge it to you? It will enrich the life of our congregation. You know, a healthy body is built with healthy parts. And healthy parts are built with healthy tissue. And healthy tissue is built with healthy cells. And on and on and on down it goes. The healthier you are, the healthier your family will be. The healthier, and I'm not talking about physical health. I'm talking about emotional, relational, spiritual health. Health. The healthier you are, the healthier your family has an opportunity to be. The healthier your family is, the healthier our congregation has an opportunity to be. And earlier I was, as I was praying that God would give us, give us a passion and a desire to see others in this congregation. Others coming to know the life that we share together. That will be realized when we get serious about our families and when we get serious about celebrating the holiness of a meal together. Celebrating life together. Jesus said, consider the lilies. Look to the birds. Seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all all of the world's troubles will be taken care of. Let's pray.